It is indeed a grand privilege and joy that we each have today to be able to come together. And as Brother Dennis already made mention in our announcements, how appreciative we each can be for the opportunity that's ours in a degree of safety and quietness, and also with the wonderful characteristic of the fact that today is a day especially chosen, in fact, to honor our mothers. But we can certainly be appreciative not only for our mothers present today, but that are our members, but certainly all of our visitors, whether they be male or female, we're thankful for each and every person that's come our way today. We trust that the service that will be edifying to each of us will certainly most of all bring glory to the great name of the God of heaven. As I briefly made mention, this is that Sunday, the second one in May, each year set aside for an especial note to honor mothers. Today's lesson, as you may have noted in the announcement, or at least in the title by way of the bulletin, will also relate to that. I would invite you then to note with me over the next few moments some thoughts concerning Paul's mother figure. It is a rather interesting consideration, isn't it, in the Word of God that we find reference to many, many mothers. Paul's mother's name is not given to us. I might, by way of introduction, though, urge you to think at least of these. We do not find, of course, in all places of the world, countries that honor mothers. We do find many in the European continent, the European continent does so. Here in America, of course, it is entirely appropriate from the perspective of the Bible to draw some considerations about the worthiness of mothers, the especial way that they can impact our lives and direct us in the ways that are most noble and honorable with regard to that. Think about some of the women who are mothers who are listed by name in the Word of God. We might start with Eve, and from there on consider such women as Sarah, and even Ruth, or Hannah, or Jochebed, or even Zipporah. We may turn to the page of the New Testament and make note of even Mary. Can we not also make note of others that might well be enlisted amongst those that are named? T Timothy's mother, her name of course, Eunice. All along that line, as we read about the nature of mothers and the impact that they exhibited throughout the centuries, it is a significant thing to notice that mothers are often mentioned not specifically by name. Indirectly, what about Noah's wife? We know that she was a mother, but the, her name is not given. Might we notice that as often as mothers are named and mentioned in the Bible, certainly they have a dramatic and powerful role to play in God's plan for the family, in God's plan for the well-being of every individual. As I noted just a minute earlier, Paul's mother's name is not given to us in the Bible. He, he however, does make reference to a lady who, though she was not his biological mother, she nonetheless was a mother figure unto him, and it is that text to which I would invite us to turn our attention this morning and revisit some of the thoughts of which Paul made note and see what in them we might use to remember ourselves about the joy and beauty of those women in our lives who have played the role of a mother, perhaps our biological mother, perhaps even our wife who we watch day by day as she in fact lives and breathes as a mother. Paul's mother figure. By way of considering that text, it was read in our hearing a moment ago by Brother Adam from the last chapter of the book of Romans. It is to that very chapter I would turn our attention again. It would do us well, however, to make note of some introductory thoughts relative to that epistle before we turn our attention especially to that verse. 
The book of Romans, as we've each noted, is the sixth in the New Testament. It falls thus in a dramatic and powerful role of prominence and preeminence amongst the letters that were written by the hand of Paul. We know that 13 books of the New Testament were penned by him, and we furthermore appreciate that it could well be one other was. And if that's true, 14 books due to none other than the genius of the Apostle Paul. But might we notice the first one listed as it occurs in the New Testament is Romans. Even from times of antiquity, the book of Romans has been hallmarked as one of the grandest expositions ever to be penned. That's not only by those who have appreciation for the Word of God, but also those who sometimes have less appreciation. Even they have understood the dramatic power of the central theme of the book of Romans, salvation by faith. How often does Paul draw the attention of the Roman brethren to that point? Romans 1.16, as we even noted in prayer, not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. In chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, in fact, in many ways, to the end of that chapter, an unparalleled reference to the absolute character of salvation by faith in Christ. It should well be noted that that Roman congregation was beset by a host of difficulties, not quite like now the Corinthian congregation. Nonetheless, their issue was this. There were those that were Jews, and there were those that were Gentiles, and Paul's charge to them was, you need to be bound together as one family in God. No longer do you hold to these distinctions then of Jew versus Gentile. You are brothers in Christ, and as such, live in that fashion. Be like-minded, Romans 12, verses 4 and 5. All through the course of his exposition of that, might it be noted that through 15 scintillating and powerful chapters, the thought is set forth of the behavior in Christ and what has been gleaned by us, for, uh, by us in regard to His work. That then brings us to the closing chapter. Many have looked upon the final chapter in Romans and have seen a bit of an oddity. One does not read, for instance, an extended discussion about the nature of salvation per se, one doesn't read of an extended discussion about the church in Rome, per se. Rather, there is name after name after name presented. Some person was especially named by Paul and complimented, usually. That compliment was such that Paul, of the dearest and highest regard, sent his greetings to these individuals in Rome. Twenty-nine names are especially listed in the last chapter of this book. And in those 29 names, we find especially the references to Paul's greeting sent to them, salutations, his urging of their continued work for the Lord. And all the while, through the mention of those names, that still does not mention nine more. total of 38 names in this chapter. The other nine are those, in fact, with Paul who sent greetings. I'd submit to you that there's alone a dramatic lesson even in that. That takes on a somewhat added observation when we appreciate the fact that Paul himself had never personally visited the congregation in Rome at the time this letter was written. At that point, that raises some interesting questions. Here was Paul, as he closes this letter, directly calling by name various individuals in the congregation at Rome, and yet he had never personally visited them. For that he mentions in Romans 1, verses 7 through 14. What then might we make of this? These were individuals whom Paul had learned that were there. 
He had come to realize perhaps by his earlier association with them in other places that they had now traveled and moved to Rome so that they thought they could be the best servants of the Lord in the imperial city. By whatever means he came to know that information, how clearly their minds, how clearly they rested on the mind of Paul. He appreciated their work. He mentioned them by name and the Holy Spirit chose forever to make mention of the same in this inspired book. Of note among the listings there, I would direct your attention to verse 13, which will be the central text for our lesson this morning. But along the way to that point, isn't it interesting to note, this forever teaches us that Christianity is not a cold and abstract and heartless religion. Here was even the beloved apostle Paul making clear note of these names of people in Rome. He loved them. He cherished their work. He appreciated their fervor and their labor in the Lord. And he desired that that would only be edified and encouraged with regard to that thought. He does choose to mention then in verse number 13 a very special lady. Now this isn't the only woman of name, of name in this chapter. But I would ask you to note the one that's named here. Salute Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother and mine. We clearly observe then that the verse is somewhat brief, but amongst the listing is first of all a mention of Rufus, and there's also a mention in that same text of his mother. Now before we come to a more considered interest in that, let's note some of the words first so that we fully appreciate the thrust of the Holy Spirit's message. You might note that that verse begins with the word salute, a verb that simply means to greet. It simply means to express good wishes. It simply means to embrace. That word had often been used in that chapter if we take the opportunity to read it. Paul had sent salutations to many, many people, some of whom were males, some of whom were females. It was a way to send very cherished and honorable greetings. But notice next we see the word Rufus. Here is a person, a man, whose name is especially given. Salute Rufus, Paul said. As he wrote to the congregation in Rome, he encouraged them to send greetings or salute a man whose name was Rufus. We do not know much about Rufus. There is another person in the scriptures that also has that name, and it may well be that their references are to the same person. In Mark 15, verse 21, I would at least bring to our attention the thought of the one named there. We well remember our Savior was agonizing under the load of the cross. He had already been scourged, and he himself, under a parade of so-called dignity, was being led to none other than Golgotha, where there he'd be nailed to a cross and crucified for the sins of the world. On the occasion, though, of walking toward that place, our Savior fell, it would seem, beneath the load of that cross, and a man named Simon of Cyrene was urged and impelled to aid to carry that cross. In that very verse of Mark 15, 21, we're told that Simon had two boys, two sons, and the name of one of them was Rufus. It certainly is not conclusive that the Rufus of mention here in Romans 16 is the same as in Mark 15, but certainly it's not an impossibility. For after all, if Simon was of sufficient need to consider the greatness of Christ and to be present on the occasion of that crucifixion, could he well have had two sons who later would come to appreciate what their father did in carrying the cross? What their father was able to at least aid the Savior of the world in doing? 
it's certainly not an impossibility. At any rate, Rufus is mentioned in Romans 16, 13. Salute Rufus. Isn't it amazing to consider that person, for Paul goes on to say he's chosen. It is certainly true that every Christian in one sense is chosen. We are the elect of God. First Peter chapters 1 and 2 both unfold that thought. As you and I accept the wonderful grace of God by obeying the truth, we ourselves are those that come to appreciate the selection and chosenness of us. But it would seem that's not what Paul had in mind, for he said, chosen in the Lord. It perhaps might be well to note, it would seem Rufus was especially honored, here in the words of Paul, for being not only a special person, but one who engaged in a very powerful and special work on behalf of his Lord, chosen in the Lord. As often as that prepositional phrase, in the Lord, occurs in the New Testament, it seems to be fraught with such meaning and power Children, obey your parents in the Lord. We read that text in Ephesians 6, beginning in verse number 1. And we also read about the nature of, be it marriage, in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 7, 39. Here we notice Rufus was chosen in the Lord. Might we observe that though the details are not given... The work in which he had chosen to involve himself, the labors he had undergone for the cause of the Master were such that Paul chose to make note of it, chosen in the Lord. And then the verse races to the part of greater consideration for us this morning. For then it goes on to say, and his mother. Again, the Holy Spirit has chosen to be somewhat silent. We are not given her name, nor are we given especially the labor and work in which she had involved herself, but... Paul sent greetings, salutations to her. Salute Rufus's mother and mine. It is that latter part that is of such great intrigue. Rufus's mother and mine. I would ask you to notice especially the rendering in the English Standard Version. As I write that at the bottom of that screen, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Paul here was not especially referencing his biological mother. Whatever aid and work Rufus's mother had been able to accomplish, Paul looked upon her in a sense as a mother figure. He saw in her an individual, a lady, if you will, who had been such a dramatic influence upon his life and who in a way served as the role of a mother. What might be said about Paul's mother figure? What else might be affirmed about her work and labor? As you and I today perhaps choose to honor the mothers in our lives, I'd submit we might well spend a few moments as we, from now to the close of our lesson, commenting on Paul's mother figure based on this text as well as others, and see if we can't come to a deeper appreciation, not only for this special lady in Paul's life, but also for those women who are the mothers in ours. Some lessons that might well be drawn would, could well be started with this one. In terms of what this lady had done for Paul, it certainly seems appropriate to mention in the sense that she was a mother figure, she loved him. For else, is, could it well be said that a mother is preeminently known for anything else? She is known as an individual of great love. Paul's mother figure, this same person, namely Paul, would later write to Titus, and in Titus 2, verse 4, he would urge the older women to teach those younger women to love their husbands and to love their children. 
So certainly it would seem that as Paul commended her for being a mother figure to him, one of the things she must have expressed in one way or another must have been a degree of love for him. A consideration of love perhaps in regard to his labor as a gospel preacher. Perhaps a love in regard to simply a treasured person who being far from home was well removed from his own biological mother. In regard to notes like that one, had it well been the case that she had often inconvenienced herself to provide a very specially needed thing for him? Aren't mothers wonderfully able to accomplish that? In the closing chapter of that beautiful Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 6, we note there that love is stronger than death. There is very little that a mother will not do for her children. It doesn't matter if it causes her inconvenience. It doesn't matter if it demands great sacrifice of her. She is often more than happy to do it. Had it been the case then in that long ago distant day when the conveniences of life were nowhere near what they are today, that this lady, namely the, Rufus, the mother of Rufus, had in fact conducted herself to great inconvenience to provide some physical necessity for Paul. He often was found in prison. He often was traveling and far distant from home, often perhaps with no convenient place at all even to sleep and stay. Maybe she provided some greatly needed physical necessities of his life. It would seem in his commendation of her, we might well remember Romans 12 where we note the beautiful fact of the trueness of love. Let love be without dissimulation. Paul's wonderful refrain to this same congregation in Rome. That word dissimulation simply means hypocrisy. It means lack of genuineness. Let love be real, Paul affirmed. And so it could well be said, this lady, this mother of Rufus, had exhibited to him by some means a way that he would look upon her as a mother figure to himself. Might you and I today thus be so mindful of our own mothers and those ladies in our life who fill the role of motherhood to appreciate and honor them. Of course, that degree of honor doesn't just come one day a year, but it comes or it should come each day, shouldn't it? Might we well remember in the Old Testament law of Moses that the command by the very God Himself on more than one occasion was, Honor thy father and thy mother. It was not simply restricted to fathers, but to mothers. She is deserving of the honor of her children, and she is deserving of their respect, and that should be something that accords to their description of her year-round. That text we just noted, Honor thy father and thy mother from Exodus 12, is repeated verbatim in Deuteronomy 5. God wished His people to understand the importance of that powerful glue in a family. But not only could we make note of the love of this mother figure for Paul, perhaps we could make note of something else. No doubt in Paul's life she was able to provide also a wonderful degree of encouragement to him. I would ask you to notice some of the features of his life that would help us perhaps readily anticipate that. We well know that from the days of the time of the road to Damascus onward, Paul's life was entirely changed. He proceeded to labor ceaselessly on the cause of the Master. It would seem that he traveled far and wide to preach the truth. In fact, Ananias had told him on the very first occasion after he'd seen the Christ on the road to Damascus that God has chosen you to be a witness among all nations of me. Acts twenty-two fifteen. 
Paul took that challenge and that charge seriously. Various missionary journeys, a voyage to Rome. Even later, it would seem he visited Spain, not for vacation, but to preach the truth. Romans 15, verses 26 and following. It might be noted thus that this person who himself went everywhere preaching the truth is such that he himself was often found in harm's way for that very reason. You see, Paul met such opposition from Jews, from other types of people who were not only uninterested in his message, but sought at all points possible to oppose it. He was ran out of town, you might remember, in Thessalonica in Acts 17. On another occasion, let down over the wall in a basket to escape harm's way in Corinth. All the while, that leads us to perhaps recollect Paul's very touching words in 2 Corinthians 11. Beginning in verse 23 of that chapter, Paul simply said, Are they ministers of Christ? I'm more. On that occasion, Paul was speaking about statements that others were, being, were making about him. Statements that were calling into question his servitude and his ferventness for the service of the Master. Are they servants of Christ? I'm more. At that point, he began to list some of the things that he endured for the cause of Christ. And that list is a bit familiar to us as we remember the following statements. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons frequent, in deaths oft. Paul made note that frequently he'd been found in prison. On many occasions he had labored with a great deal of consideration and effort. In fact, even in the face of death more than once. The next verse goes on to say, of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes, save one. On five different occasions by the time he had written this, he had been lashed and beaten thirty-nine times by those who were his Jewish opposers. Those beatings, of course, were greatly difficult. They, of course, had not brought him to the point of death yet. But think about the suffering. Notice in the next verse he goes on to say, Thrice was I beaten with rods. Once was I stoned, thrice I suffered shipwreck, and nine in a day I was in the deep. Shipwrecks. On this occasion, we notice he had even affirmed that in regard to shipwreck, a day and a night he'd been in the deep, floating perhaps on planks out in the water. Why had he done those things? Why had he been going those places to preach the truth? That brings us now back to where we had begun. Who along the way may have provided some encouragement to Paul? Don't give up. You keep going. You were given a charge and you preach the truth for all of eternity. Hangs on the balance of what you preach. There are souls who need to hear what you have to say. As Paul thus left one city to go to the next, not knowing whether the brethren there would receive him or not, not knowing in fact how he would be responded and treated, could it be that along the way, from time to time, the mother of Rufus may have just met him, at least for an hour or so, and encouraged him? Could it be she may have provided a meal for him? Could it be that she provided some other things that so greatly encouraged him in mind? As he wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 1, he did express thanks to individuals whom he chose not to name who had been so encouraging to him. Could it be that the mother of Rufus was, was one of them? At this point, certainly you and I can't state that certainly and factually, but it could well have been. I would ask you to think with me about all the wonderful things that mothers can provide by way of encouragement. 
Have you been encouraged by your mother? Something she said or did to help you reach your dreams and your goals and your aspirations? Something that she encouraged you perhaps many, many times to never give up, though the times would be difficult and hard. A mother has such a kind way of smiling and letting you know that things will be all right and that things will be able to work out. We do know this much about Paul. He endured. He pressed on toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, to use his own words in Philippians 3.14. As he pressed onward, he admitted that he had forgotten what was behind, but he looked so anxiously to what lay ahead. Could it be that this lady, this mother of Rufus, encouraged him in that mindset and aided him to preach the truth so boldly? Acts 14, verse 3. The thoughts perhaps lead us to see that we each are encouraged by way of our Christian service to press on, to reach out to what lie ahead. Hebrews 6, verse 1. She may well have encouraged him in this manner and in this way. In thinking about these two, I would urge you to think with me about another, another aspect perhaps of her service to him. One of the things we each think about a mother, and we each as fathers, of course, can well admit it, we do not have even close to the talents that a mother has. A father can do many things, of course, that a mother can't do, but when it comes to the nature of making a house into a home, a man can put up the boards and build a house. He can put up the drywall and paint it. But all oh, the things that a mother can do toward turning that literal structure into a home. Could it be that she, this lady, on more than one occasion provided a wonderful place that Paul could at least for a few hours call a home? She might have done that. After all, in the Old Testament, we remember Elijah was blessed in that way. There was a woman who so appreciated his labors for the Lord that she encouraged her husband, let's build a room so that the prophet of God can stay for at least a little while when he comes this way. And they built that room, and Elijah was privileged on more than one occasion to spend a little time and enjoy a place that he might well call his home away from home. As Paul traveled around the ancient Roman Empire preaching the truth from one city to the next, did there find a place for him where he could at least have a home away from home? As this precious lady made that home for him, might we revisit Titus 2 verse 5. On that occasion again, as the Apostle Paul wrote to that young son in the faith of his Titus, he encouraged the ladies, the older ladies, to again teach the younger in regard not only to loving husband and father or husband and children, but also to express the nature of home. At home. Those thoughts perhaps bring to our mind also these considerations. This lady apparently had great appreciation for Christian service. A home by any means to know its peacefulness and tranquility is a grand blessing. But when a woman, a mother, seeks to fashion a Christian home, that now has elevated to another plateau. For you see, a Christian home is one where those children can be reared not only in understanding the characteristics of life, but the knowledge of eternity the understanding of God's Word and what lay ahead, the beauty and power of becoming that which is of great service to the Master. This lady, of course, it would seem, had those characteristics for Rufus was chosen in the Lord and he was her son. 
And here Paul, who was a grand gospel preacher, was well appreciated and pushed onward by her. As this mother figure is mentioned in another way, we can't help but think about the blessing that Timothy enjoyed in this regard. We remember that Timothy was one who obeyed the gospel in Acts 16. Have you ever wondered and made note what brought him to that point in life? After all, his father was a Greek. Thus, it would seem that his father would have been no encouragement to him to come to know the God of the Old Testament. Who was it that encouraged Timothy so? Let us notice 2 Timothy 3.15. As Paul wrote the last epistle he would ever write, one of the final comments and remarks to that young son Timothy of his, he said, And from a babe thou hast known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. From a babe thou hast known the Holy Scriptures. That's what Paul affirmed. Who was it that taught Timothy the Scriptures while he was still a toddler and while he was still an infant and while he was yet far too young to walk? We only need to turn back two chapters. In 2 Timothy 1 verse 5, we notice there that Paul makes reference to the unfeigned faith that is in thee and dwelt first in thy mother Eunice and thy grandmother Lois. We notice that Timothy had a tremendous advantage in that a mother took upon him the interest and character of guiding his footsteps in the way of godliness from an early, early age. You see, that mother is named. Her name was Eunice, and Eunice's mother Lois is also complimented. May you and I also similarly appreciate the thankfulness of our mothers who attempted to guide us in the way of rightness. It's certainly true that we disappointed them on far too many occasions. We certainly failed on far too many occasions to implant as fervently in our heart her words as we ought to have. But should we not be appreciative and thankful for her efforts and her diligence in guiding us in the pathways of right? This lady, whose name is not given to us, Rufus's mother, she was in fact the mother figure to Paul. I might bring to our attention Proverbs 1 verse number 8. The inspired writer of old at the very outset of that letter of Proverbs said, For, Forsake not the law of thy mother. We would do well to listen to that which she has to say. We would do well to implant in our mind those cherished and powerful thoughts welded from the crucible of experience. For you see, she is motivated by love, motivated by encouragement, motivated by that which seeks the best for those who are her children. A mother would not stay and encourage that which would bring harm purposefully, that which would bring a degree of distastefulness and disagreement personally, but she does so out of a motivation of wishing the best for those who are her children. Paul's mother figure. As we close this lesson this Lord's Day morning, might we yet again remember, honor thy father and thy mother, especially in regard to some of the closing thoughts of our lesson this morning. We have looked somewhat interestingly at a woman whose name wasn't given, simply the mother of Rufus. As we comment, though, about her, we have been reminded of the love that a mother expresses, the encouragement that she embodies, and so wonderfully about the nature of her provision in a host of ways for a family. Today, as we honor our mothers, let it not simply be on just one day, but she is deserving of a special degree of our appreciation today. It may well be at this point that a mother has so often prayed for and encouraged for one or more in this audience to obey the gospel. 
if you're not a member of the church of Christ, not a member of the blood-bought body of the Savior, has your mother wished and longed and shed tears on your behalf that you might one day make that decision? Today would be a marvelous day for you to, in fact, show appreciation, not primarily, of course, to her, but to the very Son of God that died for you. The very Son of God who, outside Jerusalem 20 centuries ago, shed blood that you and I could be saved forever. That's what your mother wants you to know. If you need to become a Christian today, realize that just the Son of God Himself asked, demanded that we each do this. Believe Him to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess His sweet name as the only begotten Son of God. And finally, be immersed, baptized for the forgiveness of sins. If your mother has wanted you so often to do that, please urgently think about the circumstances of your life. Where do you stand from the perspective of eternity? And if you need to respond in a public way today, there is a host of people here who would have a smile on their face and honor, thankful for the grand decision that you've made. If you have become a Christian, but you haven't lived like one, you have lived in ways that have brought shame to your name and maybe to hers, come back to your first love. Walk again blessedly in the glorious light of the gospel, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6. And as you do that you'll again bring great joy to not only the Savior in heaven, but to all who cherish and love you, and perhaps especially your mother. Today, if we could be of assistance to you in either of these ways, we not only would feel it an honor and a privilege, but the God of heaven and the angels that surround His throne would rejoice greatly on your behalf, Luke 15, 7. If we could assist you today, would you not let that be known as together we stand and as we sing.